On the day I was married, thousands of people flocked to cemeteries to mourn the dead. What does that even mean? Let's have an inappropriate conversation about marriage, or more specifically, companionship marriage. I believe in the second episode about the author and that pseudonym that I maintained in my school years getting an obituary or a, an epitaph written for him when I was in college. One of the lines from that was the line that I opened up this show with. On the day I was married, thousands of people flocked to cemeteries to mourn the dead. When I decided to make my school year's pseudonym obsolete, I wrote a surrealist short story to serve as a memorial service. The opening quote is a line from that eulogy, and it refers to a number of key relationship milestones with my partner falling on this holiday weekend. Actually, the specific relationship milestone was our very first date, something like 29 years ago. And just to get things going on this topic, I'd like to suggest that to describe myself as being happily married would be some sort of a crazy understatement, but I think we take for granted what it means to be happily married. But first, let me point out a red flag. And it's a red flag that applies on all sides of the political and social spectrum. We sometimes see two or more events that happen together as being, you know, a correlation, when maybe the correlation doesn't exist, or even worse, seeing some kind of cause and effect relationship when no cause and effect relationship should ever be implied. This is Memorial Day weekend in the United States. It's a weekend that is designed to provide people an opportunity to be solemn and to honor those who have died in military conflict, it specifically had a focus going all the way back to the Civil War when both sides of that conflict represented American casualties. However, it has really become to represent uh, all, of the, all of the people who've died defending the country in military service. And hence, that gives you the, the sense of why on this particular weekend, you would have a lot of people going to cemeteries, you know, bringing flowers, bringing family together to mourn a loved one who lost uh, his or her life in military conflict. But it's also what uh, I believe Europeans call a bank holiday weekend. So in the United States, it's a Monday off. So if, you're, uh, if you want to go on a date with a girl who doesn't go to the same high school that you go to, you really need a day off. It either needs to be a weekend occasion, or better yet, in this case, a holiday. So while all of those other people were you know, remembering the lost, remembering the fallen, visiting cemeteries, we went on a picnic. So I've introduced an example of one of these potentially false correlations, the beginning of a budding love relationship, uh, perhaps even other milestones, certainly anniversary type milestones, being uh, corresponding with the idea of people going to visit a cemetery. And is there any connection between the two? Well, no, there's not. Well, let me raise a few others that I think we're going to hint at a little bit or even talk directly about today. Did equality for women cause the rate of divorce to increase? Did the Apostle Paul's uh, kind of instruction to a mouthy and ignorant person in Corinth lead to centuries of subjugation for women? Would a return to the traditional man is the king of his castle type marriages really restore marital harmony and undercut divorce statistics? These are questions which I think represent at least a potentially false correlation. Or, if a relationship exists, it's not a relationship that we should take for granted. I originally wanted to call this, 
Equality in marriage, and whether we take for granted something that didn't until very recently even exist, but instead, I've gone with the term companionship marriage. So let's talk about marriage again. And I'm going to do that by referring to one of the best resources in the world on this topic. He's somebody we talked about before in the context of the sexual revolution. I'm going to quote very freely from a speech given by David R. Mace called Love, Anger, and Intimacy. It's going to spend a lot of time talking about actually relationships and anger, but in the end, he gets to the thing I really want to discuss, which is companionship, marriage, and he does so in a way that's much better than I could. So we're going to rely once again on this man who, in my mind, is a giant, not just in the faith, but a giant in the realm of family counseling. This is David Mace. When a marriage ends in divorce, the failure always takes place from the inside. Difficulties with sex, money, in-laws, and child raising are not the real causes. The inner failure of a close relationship comes down to an inability to achieve mutual love and intimacy. It is always due to the inability of persons concerned to deal creatively with anger. Let me make two statements that may well surprise you. Again, this is David May speaking. One, marriage and family living generates in normal people more anger than they experience in any other social situation. You don't hear that spoken very often, certainly not by what people we might describe as Christian counselors, but I think he's right on target. And two, the overwhelming majority of family members know only of two ways to deal with anger, to vent it or to suppress it. Both of these methods are destructive of love and intimacy. And again, to quote David Mace is to quote somebody who actually has an extensive background in family counseling. So Mace says this, what are two married people trying to do? This is going to be fascinating for us because we're dealing with somebody who's actually standing at the crossroads and working on the front lines of the distinction between what we might call the traditional marriage model and companionship marriage. And it's really right here in his answer to this question that you can see those two things coming together. He, he answers the question of what two married people are trying to do by providing a list. To beget children. To keep sex under reasonable control. By reasonable control, I think I would refer to that more as to provide a focus, to provide uh, an intimate, personal focus. To foster man-woman companionship. The last of these has, um, throughout most of Christian history, been given little attention. But the primary goal of modern marriage, whether we approve of it or not, is actually to achieve that close relationship of love and intimacy. So you can see marriage is coming from something that was proscriptive, something that you have to do in order to properly beget children and keep the proper focus on sexual behavior, to what it really is today, a means by which of fostering male and female companionship. David May says, I prefer to focus on intimacy. He says, intimacy is the manifestation of real love, and a simple definition is, intimacy is shared privacy. We find refuge in a smaller, private world where we can take off our masks, be honest and open about who we really are, and have a chance to become fully known and deeply loved. That's worth quoting again. Fully known and deeply loved. The price of intimacy, though, is clear and simple. We must take down our defenses, make ourselves totally vulnerable. No married couple really knows what marriage is at its best until they have done that with each other. After a lifetime of seeing inside people's marriages, including my own, Mace says, I would have to reluctantly say that most marriages never reach this goal. Why? Why is this? Anger blocks the way. 
So we need to consider briefly just exactly what anger is. I see anger as a complex series of bodily changes triggered by a sudden awareness of danger. All of us live, to some extent, in danger. He goes on to give examples, and I'm not going to because I think we, we really have a pretty sufficient imagination there. The only thing I would ask of you is this. Compare the danger that you experience when somebody cuts you off on the highway and you have nowhere to go but you know, a ditch or a semi. We're, we all live daily in that kind of danger. But also the kind of danger that you uh, deal with in personal relationships, whether it's you know, in the office, at work, or in your home, about that difference between what you hope and dream will happen and what really does. There's a danger that we face on multiple levels, whether it be a, a mild, perhaps some would say trivial, interpersonal sort of a danger, or an actual life and death, somebody walked into this uh, restaurant with a gun. You know, it's always, it's always possible that we're in the, those kinds of fairly devastating, dangerous circumstances. Back to Dr. Mace. Many people feel ashamed and guilty about being angry and try to deny their own feelings. I believe that anger is a natural, healthy, emotional state and should be accepted as such. Rightly used, anger could save our lives. Short of that, it can provide the motivation for personal and social action that could change all of our lives for the better. Let us therefore affirm our anger and be thankful for it. However, once the anger is there, it must be rightly used. You are not responsible for your anger being there, but you are responsible for what to do with the anger as soon as you become consciously aware of it. The Bible really puts it very well. Be angry and sin not. Being angry is not sinful, but misusing anger can be sinful. When you experience a surge of anger, you have a choice between three ways in which you can deal with it. The first is to vent it in some form of physical action. However, when people speak about getting rid of their anger by venting it, this is simply not accurate. Because drawing on the energy supply is actually sending a message to your body to keep that anger coming. Another way of dealing with anger is to suppress it. There are life situations where this is obviously the sensible thing to do. There are many creatures, smaller creatures, that when you know, pressed with a dangerous situation, they don't respond either by fight or by flight. They freeze. They play dead. What happens when we do this? Does the anger go away? What occurs when this happens again and again is that the body establishes a state of a continuing low-key tension, a kind of slow, simmering anger that never entirely goes away. We often call this resentment. It is a fairly unhealthy state to be in. It seems like an excellent place for me to go off on a tangent and say that at this point in my life, being the age that I am, it's no longer reasonable to think that I might one day be a principal songwriter and a percussionist and a, ma a manager of electronic instruments for an industrial heavy metal or industrial hard rock band. So I'm going to officially give up the name that I had reserved for myself to call that band, and I think you're going to like where I'm going here. If you think about it, that sort of industrial hard rock, and I'm thinking really specifically electric guitar driven, so kind of taking that progression from where Skinny Puppy was to what ministry did with it and taking it even one step further, you know, maybe a little bit of really twerk it up to where it's, it's a fantastic live show, I was going to call that band Smoldering Resentment. I always thought Smoldering Resentment was a great name for this particular kind of rock and roll. And um, the kind of energy that you get in a rock concert when you're seeing this kind of group perform you know, is really exactly what uh, Mace is talking about in this speech. That simmering anger that never really goes away. 
This bottling up of anger is particularly harmful in the marriage relationship. Anger and love are in fact mutually exclusive emotions. When you are angry, you can't be loving, especially toward the source of your anger. However, when a fight takes place, the couple may expend some of their anger on each other, make up, and be warm and affectionate again. And many marriages work on that yo-yo principle. It's actually the punchline of jokes. I believe it was the Seinfeld sitcom that had a moment where um, George Costanza, the uh, character who never seems to fare very well, realizes that he had a fight with his girlfriend and they broke up and he missed out on the makeup sex. And uh, Jerry Seinfeld tells him that that's really the whole point of having the fight in the first place. Many couples actually function that way as a rule. However, when anger is bottled up and becomes resentment, and you have this continuing state of hostility between two people, it forces them to keep a distance from each other. The inner core of love between them withers away, and although they may go through the motions of being affectionate, it is not genuine. So in this respect, the bottling up is even worse. There is a third way, and the third way represents a way out. David Mace says, In my own marriage, our discovery that anger could be dissolved came about almost by accident. It took the form of what we call, what they call, the three-step system. The first step was to recognize openly that anger, in marriage as anywhere else, is a healthy emotion, and that it is not in our power to prevent it. We therefore freely give each other the right to be angry with each other. However, we agreed that when one of us did get angry with the other, we would communicate this as soon as possible. We would recognize that it should be as acceptable to say, I am feeling angry, as it is to say, I am feeling sad, or I am feeling hungry. However, we drew a line between acknowledging anger and venting anger, and this enabled us to take the second step, which is a commitment on both sides that we would never again attack each other. This assurance that there would be no attack made it unnecessary for the other partner to go on the defensive and develop retaliatory anger. And the third step developed naturally from this. Acknowledging anger and promising not to vent it doesn't take away the negative emotions. In order to do this, we had to accept the fact that the state of anger in one partner, evoked by the other, is an integral part of our total relationship, and that we both have an equal responsibility to clear it up. This directly challenges the frequently asserted notion that my anger is mine alone, and that I must be responsible for dealing with it. We found that this simply does not work in an intimate relationship. I hope at some point to talk a little bit about Carl Jung, and when I do, Carl Jung expresses this same exact idea that Mace has here, that many of us have this notion that we consider to be obvious, I'm going to say quote obvious, unquote, that um, you know I know who I am and I know what I think, and from a psychological perspective, from a psychiatric perspective, that's really a naive point of view. And what Dr. Mace is saying here is that, you know, this, this idea we have that my anger belongs to me simply is not true, especially if you're angry at or with or about someone, that other person has a piece of that action as well. He words it this way, if you have made me angry, I cannot clear up the situation completely without your actively sharing in the process. What are the stakes? Failure to deal realistically with every anger situation as it arises is the major cause of the failure in modern marriages. So the stakes are very high. And it's the reason I'm spending so much time on his perspective on anger, when I really want to deal instead with the concepts in modern marriage. What do I mean by dealing realistically with an anger situation? We must remember that anger is not the primary, but only a secondary emotion. 
It is the body's response to another kind of stimulus that usually takes the form of fear or frustration. Anger is a spontaneous response. My real need is to be understood, loved, and supported. And as someone has said of teenagers, the time when they need love the most is the time when they seem the most unlovable. This must be done in an atmosphere of openness and honesty, with all the relevant facts and feelings shared. If the anger is too hot to handle, it may prove necessary to wait, but postponement must not become evasion. What in fact happens when anger situations in marriage are faced together in this way? Years of experience have clearly shown my wife and me, this is Dr. May speaking, that careful examination always reveals one of two situations. Either it turns out that my anger was based on misconception or misinterpretation of her words and deeds, in which case we must improve our communication system so that I am much less likely in the future to misinterpret behavior. Or, on the other hand, it turns out to be that she has pushed me beyond the limits of my tolerance at that particular time, in which case we must find a way to improve her understanding of my sensitivity to her words and actions, and at the same time help me to widen the limits of my tolerance to sensitive issues that I have to learn to live with. In other words, the anger situation has been used to promote a growth experience for both of us. I believe that this is a vital message for Christians, because Christianity alone, among the world's religions, puts the central emphasis on love. The love of God revealed in the life of love that Jesus lived and the promise that this divine love can bring forth a corresponding quality of love in our hearts and in our homes. That's a fairly bold statement that Mace is making. That Christianity is alone among the world's religions in putting the central emphasis on love. But in one sense, I think he's absolutely right. The emphasis here is not on tradition. It's not on struggle. It's not on submission. It's not on overcoming the world. I have just described Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, and a lot of New Age spirituality, the emphasis in Christianity is on love. Now, to the shame of a great many of our churches, it's possible that you, you never knew that before if you're not a Christian. It's possible you never knew that if you are a Christian. But when you think about it, whenever you're faced with somebody who's offering you a vision of Christianity that's all about judgment, that's all about God's anger, that's all about wrath, that's all about whatever... Ask them what their favorite verse in the Bible is, especially their favorite verse to share with somebody who's not a believer, and walk them through it. God did not so warn the world. He didn't so hate the world. He didn't so dismiss the world. He didn't so challenge the world. He didn't so provide the world as an illusion for us to overcome. God so loved the world. You see John 3.16 quoted so often, that it's almost a cliche when somebody at a sports venue holds up a sign with John 3, 16 written on it. The world would be a better place if the person holding the sign would actually stop and read the words to himself instead of reading the words to others. So Mace is saying, hey, Christianity's got a unique opportunity. And that the primary tenet of Christianity is, A, God loves the world, and B, Jesus wants us to love others. We constantly give lip service to these concepts, Mace says, but we simply do not teach Christian families in practical terms how it can be done. So many of them suffer from frustration, guilt, and shame because they know well that their family life is not reflecting Christian beliefs. But all their efforts to do better seem to be ineffective. I have to make clear that what I've been saying applies primarily to the companionship marriage and the companionship family. 
In the traditional, that is the hierarchical marriage, anger caused little trouble as long as it didn't lead to extreme violence. It was considered entirely appropriate for a husband to be angry with his wife. Indeed, if he stamped and bellowed, he was supposed to be exhibiting his masculine strength and showing that he was the master of his own home. The wife, on the other hand, was not expected to show anger at all, but to behave with the yielding sweetness and passive acquiescence, which were considered to be the feminine virtues. It made loving intimacy completely impossible. There is no evidence that I have ever encountered that a woman confronted with a corresponding stimulus generates less anger than a man does. In fact, this is Greg speaking. I've actually seen the opposite. The advent of the companionship marriage has given husbands and wives equal opportunities to express their feelings. Now, this is the key moment where Mace's ideas about anger and the ideas I wanted to share come together. So let me quote David Mace again here. The advent of the companionship marriage has given husbands and wives equal opportunities to express their feelings, and this has resulted in marital conflict on a hitherto unprecedented scale. There are some who feel that the Christian answer is to go back to the traditional marriage. I do not share this view. So David Mace doesn't share that point of view. Greg doesn't share that point of view either. The full, rich quality of love and marriage cannot be released until we respond to the great commandment of Jesus to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Well, who is the nearest of all your neighbors? Surely it is the person with whom you have entered through the most solemn of vows into a life deeply shared. It seems tragic to me that we should go on structuring marriage so that it falls short of the fullness of relational love and intimacy, simply because we cannot deal with the inevitable anger that develops in a close relationship by transforming it into a means of mutual growth. If you look at his, his concepts about what to do when you're angry, hey, share it, deal with it, grow from it. I believe that this is a vital message for all families in our world today. Everything else we try to do to help families is by comparison scratching the surface. Only by going right to the inner core of our intimate relationships and learning how to resolve what I call the love-anger cycle shall we be able to release the power to make family living warm, loving, and tender. That's his big conclusion. But you know what? I think he's right on target if you look to his entire message and say, are we ever really going to make that full transition to where family living is as conflict-free as uh, less personal or less deeply shared relationships? Of course not. It's in the nature of the fact that these relationships are so strong and personal and passionate that you're going to get that anger. There was an episode years ago in the Law and Order series where a divorced couple were engaging in such an open warfare over the custody of their child and, and the dissolution of their relationship that it ultimately led the woman in the relationship to hire someone to do a fake kidnapping of their daughter Everything went wrong. Their daughter died as a result. And the end, of the, uh, the end of the show had the assistant DA asking her boss whether that couple ever loved each other or not because it clearly had dissolved into such open warfare and hatred. Her boss said, my guess is that they loved each other passionately. And she said, passionately? And his answer was, yeah, where do you think all the hate comes from? When you have emotions running that freely and wildly, and to be honest with you, in most of these relationships, free and wild running emotions are a good thing, you're going to get more anger that way, which is really the message that David Mace is sharing. I want to focus on his idea, though, 
that there's a distinction we can make between what he calls the hierarchical marriage or what we've we've had presented to us before as the traditional marriage and this idea of companionship marriage and talk about what makes those things you know unique what makes this a change that matters a difference that makes a difference but before i do so i want to go back to our concept of false correlations or presumptions of cause and effect that aren't true because i started off this segment with three questions and here in a minute, it seems like a good time to answer them. All righty, then. <laughs> Anomaly. Something that deviates from what is standard, normal, or expected. An oddity. Peculiarity. Irregularity. Inconsistency. Incongruity. A rarity. I'm Jen. And I'm Angela. And we're the socially functional co-hosts of Anomaly, the podcast with a unique perspective, a female perspective on all things geek. Star Trek, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Buffy, Firefly, gaming, books, costuming, and general geek topics. The sometimes monthly, but always entertaining Anomaly Podcast. Anomalypodcast.com. Did equality for women cause divorce to rise? You know, on one level, what Mace is describing to us may actually be the truth. I raised the question um, a few weeks ago that it doesn't make sense on paper that people who used to have no choice but to get married in order to express sexual feelings should have had a lower divorce rate than people who, you know, they didn't have to get married to have sex, so why are they getting divorced at such a huge rate? And the difference, I think, is that when we walk into a marriage relationship with a presumption of, of hierarchy, then you tend to see people stay in situations where they're unhappy. But when you walk into a relationship where the presumption is that the partnership is going to be equal, well, then that will lead to a lot more open conflict. And we haven't necessarily, as a society or as a world, done a good job of managing those conflicts. So the answer to this first question might actually be yes from a correlation perspective, but I don't think that it's cause and effect. Because this is one of those questions where the question itself is too simple. There's more going on here than women's rights. There's a change, actually, at a much higher level in terms of saying, hey, when, when Jesus tells me I need to love my neighbor as I love myself, and if I then translate that into the most important person in my world, obviously has to be a neighbor, perhaps the most important of all my neighbors, the neighbor who lives in the same house I do, you start getting a different paradigm than we might have been offered in the Middle Ages. Speaking of the Middle Ages... Did the Apostle Paul's instructions to a mouthy and ignorant person in Corinth lead to the uh, centuries of subjugation for women? Well, again, I have to say that on one level, the answer to this question is yes. We're going to talk a little bit about Paul here in a minute. And when we do that, I want to deal with the fact that Paul, as a speaker, was writing letters to specific churches. And I think far too often, a lot of people who speak on behalf of Christianity today lose that point, that Paul was speaking to a set of circumstances in churches like Corinth, like Galatia, like Rome. And he was giving very specific advice. And in this case, I don't think he was telling every woman for the rest of recorded human history that she shouldn't speak in church. He was telling that woman or those particular women that they shouldn't speak in church. And of course, the reason behind it was not their gender. The reason behind it was that they were uneducated, they were getting things wrong, and they were creating confusion. Unfortunately, we've had people, particularly powerful people, and let's be honest, powerful men, use quotes in Scripture out of context. We'll talk about context in a minute as well. 
to then turn around and create political and social constructs where I can't argue with the fact that there is there was, and perhaps in some corners of our society really still is, a great deal of what could be called subjugation for women. I just object to the fact that it's been placed at the footstep of the Apostle Paul, when it probably should have been placed at the footsteps of those in the Middle Ages who took what Paul wrote, dismissed his context, and used it as a mantra to drive a set of political and social ideas which were not, in fact, biblical. And finally, the third, would a return to the traditional man as the king of his castle marriage restore marital harmony and undercut divorce statistics? Well, again, I didn't put these questions out there because I thought they were easy. You know, the first time I was looking at them, I thought, well, yeah, I, I disagree with the points of view in these questions, but it doesn't mean the answers are that simple. Uh, May suggests in his speech that companionship marriage, uh, for all of its great qualities, has led to conflict on a hitherto unprecedented scale, quoting him again. And so what that means is that if you want to get rid of the conflict, if you feel the conflict is the source of a significant amount of divorce, if you want to get rid of the conflict, one of the things you can do while doing that is to go back to a more traditional form of marriage. And if you go back to that traditional form of marriage, you perhaps will undercut divorce statistics. I openly challenge the idea that doing so will, quote unquote, restore marital harmony, because I think that definition of marital harmony is highly suspect. I don't think you'll be moving anybody forward. I think you'll be going backward to a place where we as a, as a society essentially gave up and said, well... This is what men are going to be. This is what women are going to be. And we're never going to advance beyond that. I think that one of the things that's happened, perhaps in my lifetime, if not somewhat a little before my lifetime, is that the society that we live in today has actually stepped up and said, no, I'm not going to accept the idea that either based on gender role or anything else, we have stepped into a place where we're less than we know we can be and have decided to accept it because, well, you know what, there's less ugliness there. There's much more ugliness in a benign acceptance of failure than there is in failing because you're striving to move forward. And uh, the first time in my life that I actually, well, twice in my life, I've encountered what I would describe as the, the failures of the, of the hierarchical marriage face-to-face. -face. I want to quickly tell those two stories and then kind of deal with my, you know, just a real quick summary of my perspective on companionship. When I was in high school, this is as late as high school, and I'll offer the caveat that it was a, a social studies law course. I don't remember the name of the class, but it was something about law. And it was being taught by a track coach. So let's put that in perspective. This was not an honors course in my high school, and it wasn't being taught as a... Uh, it wasn't being taught the same way that philosophy and government were. Uh, it wasn't the equivalent of calculus for the social studies track. But the uh, in the course of covering the law, and, and from a history perspective, and I think maybe trying to, to get people's attention, because, again, you got a track coach teaching the class. Part of that is unfair to the teacher, who is perhaps also a coach. Is I, I think he was a good guy. I don't think he was a coach who was trying to fake his way through as a teacher. I really think he was a teacher who was also a coach. But uh, what he said was is that the state of the law in the place I lived was still such that the man was the uh, head of the household, and if a man chose to move his family to get a new job to go somewhere else, and the woman he was married to didn't want to go, she was guilty of abandoning the marriage. On the other hand, if she wanted to pursue a new job, move the family to another place, and he refused to go, she was abandoning the marriage. Now, that's in my lifetime. That's something like 20 years ago. In fact, in the state that I lived in at the time, this law is probably still on the books. 
Because for one thing, the uh, state level of government in the United States of America does not do a very good job of cleaning up the dreck in its history from a law perspective. Old laws just stay there. Sometimes they stay there expired, and sometimes they stay on the books, still valid, but just quote-unquote never enforced. But in this case... Um, he's, he's quoting straight from the, uh, from, the, from the books of legislation that basically at that point in time in the state that I was in, the man was the one who decided where to go and the woman's job was to follow. That's literally the state of things at the time. So uh, that, that was fairly alarming for me. And one of the things that it triggered in my head was I didn't see how that would ever work. How in the world, if you actually meet a girl that you want to marry, how in the world are you ever going to forge the kind of relationship that's described in this speech? Now, I'm not sure that David Mesa's speech was even written at the time. It could have been something that he was delivering at uh, evangelical seminary schools or uh, in public forums in the late 70s, but it might have also crept all the way over into the 80s. It seemed to me that I'd come to the same conclusion that David Mace did, that the most important thing is having a relationship that is vibrant and living and deeply shared. And you're not going to do that if uh, one person is always the caboose and the other person is always the engine. The train analogy is not a good one. Uh, this needs to be hand-in-hand walking in the sand, footprints side-by-side kind of a situation, where from time to time, like the religious allegory, you might be looking at the footprints and find one that disappears, but that's because from time to time, each partner in the relationship has an equal opportunity to the other partner in the relationship to be the one who needs to pick that other person up and carry them for a while. So, you know, that, that's kind of the, uh, the old guard speaking in terms of this teacher and this teacher and coach in high school reading what the state of the law was uh, at the time in the American Midwest. Although let's not have a red state, blue state debate here. My guess is if you looked under the sheets in whatever you think are the most progressive states in this country, you're going to find some laws in their law books that are also very old and very embarrassing. The other one was after I'd been married for a while. I'd been married for, I want to say, at least five years. We had had a child. Maybe even the next child was on the way. Not sure about that. I had an occasion to run into an old friend from high school. Now, this was not somebody who went to the same high school that I did. This was somebody who that I, I attended church with. So we were part of the youth group together in high school, even though we lived in kind of different sides of town, because that's kind of one of the really great dynamics about church. If you've never gone to church before and you wonder, well, what's in it? One of the things that I think is really good for teenagers is that it gives you another social construct that is built in a way that isn't drawn by the boundaries that the school board sets. You don't necessarily have a lot of choice in which high school you go to, which junior high school you go to. You're going to go to the one that uh, is either a private school your parents are paying for, uh, so their choice, not your choice, or it's going to have a, a geographic relationship to being close to where you live. But if you go to a church, especially a healthy church that has you know a lot going on, you're going to attract students from all the other schools as well. So even if things are not going well in your social circle inside the school, you have this other social circle inside the church, and that can be pretty cool. But I ran into this guy. His his name's Andy. I ran into Andy a few years later, you know, and and this is after uh, he'd been married, I'd been married, I was having kids already, and uh, he wanted to talk to me. He said, well, I'd be more than happy. I mean, I'm not really the first person to invite people back into my home. That doesn't tend to be my first response. But in this case, it didn't seem like it was a bad move at all. And uh, I quickly realized after we were talking that he wanted to sell me something, that he was working for a company that was very into open direct-to-consumer sales. And I thought, well, again, no problem. Man's got to work. I'll listen. Um, he, he might even have something to offer that would help me to be a consumer of. So 
I listened to him, but I quickly realized that what he was selling, his real goal was not to sell me any products. He didn't want me to, to buy a shirt, to buy car wax, to buy whatever, you know, home health and beauty products. What he wanted was to try to get me back on the right track. Because his perception was that his friend from all those years ago had completely gone off the rails. His friend from all those years ago had lost it. Because instead of being, you know, in a traditional hierarchical marriage, man's in charge, man works, woman's at home, um, this guy was had more of a woman's at home, barefoot and pregnant mentality than I have ever encountered from the older generations. And it shocked me. Partly because I thought, really, as a generation, my generation had moved beyond that idea. But I also was not used to being corrected by people that I felt were either on an equal standing with me from a peer's perspective, or that maybe I was a little bit ahead of because my life experience was somewhat further down the line. I mean, we had gone not just from being um, married not long ago to married quite some time ago and actually had kids in the mix. And what were Andy's concerns? Andy's concerns were, these are his words, not mine. I was making my wife work. What kind of man was I? And I was sending my kids off to some stranger in a daycare. This was sort of his perspective. Oh, and the other thing was that all this secular music in my life and that I was able to talk about the plots of secular books and secular films. So he had a, he had a big laundry list. And if you want to draw a stereotype in your head about what um, an evangelical right-wing moral majority Christian looks like if he's our age or my age, well, this, this is a pretty good stereotype to draw because that's what I was dealing with. So I told him a few things after I let him kind of express his point of view. I think he was probably secretly expecting me to say, you know what, Andy, you're right. It's time to make some major changes. But instead, what I told him was that I respectfully disagreed with his point of view and that he was wrong. That the truth was, if one person in our family was going to quit work because it made sense to remove kids from, from daycare or from a Head Start program type situations and do all of that schooling at home, because I wouldn't be shocked if he's actually a 100% homeschool person now. Um, I told him that the person who's most likely to be dropping their work and staying at home from a Christian perspective is not my wife because she's a woman. It's me. He looked at me a couple of times, couldn't figure out what the heck I was trying to say. I said, listen, what do I do for a living? I run a record store, or at least at the time. I run a record store. That's it. You know, I'm not, uh, I'm not advancing the ministry in any significant ways there. You know, I'm, not, I'm not making the world a better place. And when you compare that to the work that my wife was doing at the time in the medical profession, I just drew a line right there on the sand and said, Andy, I'm not saving any lives today. There's no day that I ever get in my car, drive to work, and as a result of what I've done, somebody is going to live or die. It doesn't happen. If you're serious about making the country we live in a better place, if you're serious about making the world a better place, and your solution to that is to go into every house door-to-door and pick one partner in that relationship to pull out of the workforce, who are you going to get rid of? Somebody who's in the front lines of life and death medical decisions or the guy who runs a record store? I said, I might listen to your argument about child care and daycare and, and uh, pre-elementary education, but I'm not going to listen to it if the answer is because I'm a man, my job matters, and because my wife's a woman, her job doesn't matter. Believe me, there was a point in that conversation where I was actually tempted to just get up, tell him the conversation was over, and ask him to leave. And I think there's probably a lot of my friends listening who are saying, why didn't you do that? Well, the reason I didn't do it has a lot to do with the fact that we were having a conversation in the context of Christianity. So he may have come to me from the perspective of offering me a, uh, offering me a, some evangelical correction, and I took the opportunity to offer him exactly the same. 
Because what I told him, I also offered him the same perspective about child care. I didn't have a degree in, in early childhood education, nor did my wife. Neither one of us were experts in the best ways of uh, engaging children intellectually so that they will succeed when they get into the formal parts of education. I mean, we're talking pre-kindergarten here. And so I just let him know, I said, hey, yeah, I've put, my hand, I've put my children in the hands of people who are supposed to engage them in educational opportunities. That's not my strength. That's not my skill. When it comes time for them to learn about you know, jazz and rock and roll and country music and bluegrass and all that, I'm their guy. But when it comes time to educate them about the best way of, of going from shapes to colors to mathematics, that's not my strength. Plus, the kids at the time were actually in a facility that was right there at the hospital with my wife. So they were never more than a, well, obviously, they're never any more than a phone call away, but they were never more than a walk down the stairs away to begin with. The biggest problem I had with them was not that in my particular case his assumptions were flawed. It's not just that in my particular case he had perceived our companionship as a problem. It was that he perceived companionship in general as a problem. And that's really the challenge that I wanted to make. Well, that's a lot to say about marriage. It is possible to discuss the idea without getting off the rails in terms of uh, other questions related to unrelated social issues. The bottom line is that it does take two. Uh, it's a two-way relationship. Therefore, it's, it doesn't make sense for us to have too much of a segregated and hierarchical view about how to get things done. This is even more true when kids are involved. It maybe isn't true that it takes a village to raise a child. I'll throw that open. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Part of the reason I want to sidestep that issue is that it calls to mind certain political figures who have um, either intentionally or unintentionally allowed that to turn into a very politicized point of view. But in my mind, it does take a partnership to accomplish, not just raising kids, but even managing a household. Two to cook, two to clean, um, two to teach and lead children, two to plan, two to budget, all of it. So what is the distinction between companionship marriage? Um, pretty much you can take all of those activities and dismiss any idea that gender is a determiner on how these things get accomplished. In my house, uh, both of us cook. Uh, she cooks more than I do. Both of us do laundry, although I do much more of it than she does. Uh, both of us have activities that we do outside related to the yard, although the nice thing about having teenagers who are able to drive and operate vehicles is that uh, you can defer some of those activities to them. She pays most of the bills. Um, I do a lot of the planning, however. So it's a two-way thing, and that companionship difference makes relationships stronger. Going back to what Mace said in the very beginning, it's a deep relationship where we're looking to find refuge in a smaller, private world where we can take off our masks, be honest and open about who we really are, and have a chance to become fully known and deeply loved. Your ability to contribute to this kind of relationship is not dictated by whether or not you have a penis. I'm always alarmed by how negatively society perceives Christian teaching on gender and relations compared with the almost completely free pass we give to Judaism. I think the difference comes from the specific writings of men like Peter and Paul and how their efforts to push the envelope read today versus the fact that Judaism has essentially left old rules in place, not particularly dwelled on them, at least from the perspective of Scripture. Make no mistake, though, things are very different now, and those changes are quite recent from the perspective of history. As I mentioned earlier, I'm much less interested in how medieval scholars interpreted information that Paul communicated to a young aspiring pastor and how that pastor may want to organize things in a particular church. 
and I'm much more interested in what it was Paul was trying to accomplish and how the Holy Spirit was leading him. Our different drummer this week is Paul of Tarsus. Paul is easily the most misquoted, or perhaps I should say out-of-context quoted writer in the entire Bible. He is used as a spokesperson for old-fashioned conservative values today. Many people would in fact cite Paul as a key proponent of hierarchical marriage. In my mind, they would be wrong. Who is the real Paul of Tarsus? Paul was a man who was actually so radical in his liberal approach at the time that the otherwise conservative religious leaders in his day plotted to have him killed. Paul is best known today as the writer of most of the letters in the Christian New Testament. He also was a Pharisee, a member of the Jewish hierarchy, perhaps one of the best educated people who is spoken of in the Bible in terms of his Jewish credentials. But he also was a Roman citizen. Uh, being uh, from Tarsus gave him the advantage of being in a crossroads between both Judaism and the Roman culture of the time. And he was able to manage this very well. His credentials as a Roman citizen helped get him out of more than one scrape with the authorities. And uh, his credentials as a Jewish scholar made him somebody that the other Jewish scholars feared, particularly when he converted to Christianity. Of all the key writers in the New Testament, Paul is the one who did not have any face-to-face contact with the human Jesus. All of his experiences were not only post-resurrection, but also post-ascension. So why is it that I refer to Paul as being a radical in his day, and perhaps even a liberal radical in his day? Well, when you consider the things that people find so controversial about Paul's position, um, the role of women in the church, the role of women in society, Paul was not speaking from his own perspective about how he felt things ought to be, and he certainly was not representing God's perspective when he was you know, making statements about the, the role of women in society and uh, women in their quote-unquote proper place. He was instead referring very directly to what Jewish tradition and Jewish law had to say. How good was Paul at following the letters of the laws that he learned when he was a Pharisee? Horribly bad. This was a man who, on the one hand, has chapter and verse that you can find him telling women that they shouldn't speak in the church, but he was speaking again to those particular women. On the other hand, Paul, on more than one occasion, enters the synagogue and finds that the people who are best able to communicate the new Christian message to the existing Jewish followers were women. He put women in, pers- in positions of being evangelists, put women in positions of teaching and helping to lead others, and he did so in a way that walked right up to the line of what Jewish society would have been willing to tolerate. So the fact that when he's citing Old Testament scripture, Old Testament scripture takes a very gender-segregated hard line, doesn't necessarily mean that Paul's position is that the woman's place is in the home and that all women should be barefoot and pregnant. I would ascribe that position to somebody I've met named Andy, but not Paul. The other thing I like about Paul is that Paul was one of the apostles who laid his life on the line for what it is he believed. It's not enough to say that he was an opportunist, because he wasn't. It's not enough to say that he was a pragmatist, because he wasn't. A lot of what Paul did represented the exact opposite of the safest course of action and the exact opposite of the most expedient course of action. Paul had an inspiration based on his personal encounter with Christ, and he used that inspiration to focus himself and to make changes in society where the issues that he encountered were not between himself and the Romans or himself and the Jews, but between Christ's perspective and the perspective of the world that didn't line up with Christ's perspective. So part of the reason that I like Paul as a different drummer 
is that Paul sets an example for us that we desperately need to follow in this day and age. Anytime you find yourself in conflict, whether this is conflict in the church over what the Bible says or what your denomination's tradition tells you to do, conflict in your neighborhood over the neighborhood's association or its vision of how the neighborhood should be, or at work, Paul gives us a pretty clear vision of what it means to say, listen, in Paul's case, this is all about Christ. I've set my eyes upon Christ. I've tried to be all things for all people so that I can lead them to Christ. He had his eyes on the prize. He understood what really and truly mattered. And anybody who would approach him and tell him that it was inappropriate for him to be investing authority and uh, to be educating and helping to lead women to lead his church as opposed to you know, the husband of the woman that he might have been teaching. Paul was very quick to point out that what he was doing was all about Jesus. It wasn't about the rules. If you read the books of Romans and Galatians in particular, it's hard for me to understand how so many people feel that Paul's perspective lined up chapter and verse with what the Old Testament said and seems to be in perfect sync with what you might think of as traditional conservative Judaism because he spends a good chunk of both of those books telling the Christians that he was ministering to, the Christians that he was equipping, that they were in a completely different paradigm and that what mattered was the perspective of Jesus. And as I've said before, Jesus kept things very simple. Love God, love your neighbor. Unfortunately, Paul was not in a position to keep things so simple. He was writing specific letters to specific churches dealing with specific issues where they had perhaps found themselves in conflict over a cultural issue or over a governmental issue. But at the end of the day, when you read everything Paul had to write about it, the man kept his eyes on the prize. And his teaching us on marriage are part of the reason that I'm bringing him up as a different drummer in this particular show. For the hard line that some denominations take about divorce, Paul as a writer does not eliminate divorce as an idea that needs to be available. When someone commits adultery, when, when, you're, uh, when you're abandoned, in the case of, of, of the marriage being abandoned by one partner or the other, Paul, on the other hand, discourages people from getting married. He would be opposed to the cycle of libidinous matrimony. To him, marriage for the purpose of having sex alone was, is not a good way of conceiving how to manage a, a long-term relationship. He recommended that because of his apostleship, he was going to remain single and stay focused strictly on the ministry. Um, that doesn't mean that the Catholic Church is right in assuming that that's how all popes should live their lives. But it's the choice that Paul made. But Paul also said that rather than being uh, consumed by lust, distracted by the desire for, uh, for that kind of companionship relationship, it would be much better to go ahead and get married. So the ironic thing about Paul's perspective is not necessarily pro-marriage, but also not necessarily anti-divorce. He essentially, again, keeping things simple, in books that were written from his letters that are incredibly complex and in some cases deeply theological, still really believed in keeping things simple. I heard a program the other day where uh, a call, it was a call-in show, and on the call-in show, a person said that uh, he's, a, he's an atheist, and he was very attracted to a particular woman at work, and since he's recently divorced and now single, uh, the opportunity might present itself to forge a relationship. And the person that he, he called into, also an atheist, said, you know, turn and run. You know, the, if the person you're dealing with is a very strong evangelical Christian, this is not going to be a good relationship for you. You're going to want to walk away. And I wondered when I heard that call-in show whether or not the people that I sit next to in the pews in church on any given Sunday would have had a problem with it, whether their reaction would have been that they would be offended by that, or that in some way that was really horrible advice, because perhaps in the minds of some 
you know, marrying somebody who's not a believer is a good conversion technique. <laughs> you know, so I was kind of listening to that and kind of weighing that up. And, you know, the first thought that occurred to me was, these are actually words of wisdom that come to us straight from the books of Corinthians, straight from the letters of Paul, who basically said that it's a formula for disaster to engage in this kind of committed long-term companionship when you're not equally yoked. That's his expression, not mine. But essentially what he meant by it was that um, marriage needs to be much more intimate than something that you're going to be able to accomplish with two people who are constantly at war with each other, whether passively or, or actually aggressively, over the very core values that you hold. So on the one hand, you know, it seems like an unfortunate thing that somebody might decide not to pursue a relationship with somebody because they're not a believer and she is a believer, or the other way around. The other hand, it's completely improper to call that bad advice because that bad advice has as much to do with today's different drummer, Paul of Tarsus, as it does with any contemporary liberal thought. If there's any one contemporary liberal idea that I'd like to push for today, it's that if the relationship that you're in is not a companionship, whether that relationship be a strategic business partnership, whether it be a close personal friendship or a marriage, you're missing something you're not going to be able to accomplish as much as you'd like because this kind of relationship is about two people becoming one and you're not going to be able to get that done if you're trying to live a segregated life. The term that I actually use for it and I'll use in a future program is compartmentalization. Compartmentalization leads to all kinds of problems. It's the kind of thing that leads somebody who's committing adultery to believe that he's not really cheating on his wife somehow. It's the idea that you know somebody who's stealing from the company is not really stealing from the company after all. People have the ability to take their minds and sort of rationalize things into compartments where they separate their strong ethical beliefs in one avenue from the behavior that they're actually doing in another avenue. When you live a compartmentalized life, you're, you're really opening yourself up for the potential to be an incredible disappointment to yourself. And a compartmentalized marriage is no better. It's actually worse. Thank you for listening to this inappropriate conversation. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, the website has show notes enabled at inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com. Thanks for listening.
music by Kevin McLeod.